A lot of work to do today. Second Timothy chapter one is where we're going to start off from. We're still kind of in a little uh, no man's land here for the month of July. We're just doing some individual messages in August. We're starting a series on the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to be in Nehemiah all the way up until right before Christmas. Cannot wait for that. Next week, uh, I will be here, but our intern, the uh, the stud. Of, of Cross Point this summer, Robert, the Reforminator Ward, will be preaching, and so he's going to shuck it down. I think he's going to be in Philippians next week. Man, I can't wait. I'm going to be shadow boxing in the seats next week, and then the week after that, we'll do a standalone message. It's August. We're cranking up Nehemiah. Today, we're going to preach out of Second Timothy chapter 1, the first 14 verses, uh, a passage of scripture that's been on my heart recently. I think I got some uh, important things to myself to say today. And I hope that it applies to you too. So we've got a lot of work to do. Are you there? Second Timothy is right after First Timothy, about midway through the, uh, the New Testament. So I'd love for you to flip there. We're going to have it up on the screen, but it's really good for you to kind of see it yourself and get familiar with the book. So um, let's pray and ask God to help us today. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can open up your book. It's not a moral guide. It's not a way to more success or prosperity. It's not about us. It's about you reconciling the lost world to yourself through Jesus Christ. And about how in your great love and mercy you you offer life to all who would turn from their sin and believe in Jesus and respond to this word which is your gospel not as a means to a better life here on this earth, not as a means to comfort, but as a means to obedience and to a reflection of your glory, which along the way is the most satisfying thing for our souls, but primarily so that you would be glorified. So give us a reverence for this book and for this text and for these words that we're about to read today. They are life to dead bones. They are steel strength to insecure hearts like mine. And they are the very breath of God to people that are out of breath. So help us as we read these words, bring illumination and clarity And let your Holy Spirit fill my feeble throat and mouth and tongue and speak through me in spite of me for the sake of your people because we need to hear from you today. We don't need silly myths or relevant points. We need Jesus and the Holy Spirit prying open the doors of our scared hearts. So help us today. And as we leave this place, help us all say that surely God, the Holy Spirit, has spoken to me. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who hopefully most of us are familiar with. If you're not, he is the Apostle, in other words, the carrier of the gospel to the Roman Empire did not start off as a Christian. In fact, during Jesus' life on earth, he opposed the gospel fiercely. And in Acts chapter 9, we read about how this man Saul, who became Paul, was knocked off of a horse on his way to persecuting Christians. And God reached down 
uh, did a little one-on-one with him, turned him around, made him his preacher to the Gentiles. He begins to plant churches all through the Roman Empire in places like Kosovo and Albania and Macedonia, where the bark houses are today. And along his missionary journeys, in fact, his first, he encounters a young man named Timothy, who becomes one of his ministry companions and then begins to be his ministry associate and to pastor some of the churches and be his delegate to some of the churches that Paul has has planted and then eventually becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus, which we get our letter of Ephesians that Paul writes to them. And so Timothy is this young man that is under the tutelage and uh, mentorship of Paul, becomes a preacher and pastor in his own right. But he is, as we can gather from just clues throughout the scriptures, full of insecurity, kind of timid, Uh, A a guy that probably deals with a lot of self-doubt, is nervous, he gets anxious probably, and he's not quite sure who he is. And laced throughout the scriptures, we see Paul writing to this young man, unlike him writing to other young men, where he's saying to this guy in particular, Timothy, you can do it now, you can do it, be strong, be strong. And so he's writing this second letter of Timothy, and all through this letter he's encouraging a young man who is insecure. And today we're going to talk about insecurity and how it kills, how insecurity absolutely kills us, how it causes us to shrink our world, to make God small and people big, and to, even though we may be Christians, live in confined bondage to perception and performance and insecurity. So what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through the first 14 verses. I've got four points today we're going, to, we're going to talk about. The first is we're going to talk about, and we'll have, we can go ahead and put them up on the screen. We're going to talk about Timothy's insecurities, what they are. And as we're talking about Timothy's insecurities, I hope that we're making application about our own insecurities. We're going to talk about the consequences of insecurity, how it, how it absolutely clamps us down. And then we're going to look at, at a, almost an offhand secondary remark in passing, which is Paul's answer to Timothy's insecurity, and then we're going to look finally at our responsibility, Timothy's responsibility as well, in fighting and battling against insecurity. So <clears throat> let's go. Second Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears. I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well verse 6 for this reason i remind you to fan into flame the gift of god which is in you through the laying on of my hands for god gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and of self-control the first uh, part from this passage that we need to handle is timothy's insecurities and and the bible doesn't tell us too much about timothy's life other than one thing that we know that is very clear is that he was the product of a biracial marriage his father was a greek 
a Gentile and his mother was a Jew. And we may think, oh, well, that's not a very big deal. But in, in, in the Jewish culture, which is obviously God's people in the Old Testament, and there Jesus was a Jew. He's bringing the gospel first to the Jewish people, and then it's spreading throughout the Gentile world. There was tremendous animosity between Jews and Greeks. And so he is the product of a of a biracial marriage, and his father is not... From what we can tell, although we may be reading a little bit into the text, his father is not evidently very, very involved in his spiritual development. In fact, his father may have never become a believer in as a Jew or maybe not as a Christian. And so what we have here, we know certainly that his mother and his grandmother are the primary spiritual influences in his life. Now, I want to stop here and say thank God for godly mothers and godly grandmothers who in part uh, Christ into the life of young men, but but I also want to say that 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 inevitably creates a certain security in young men when they don't have a man who's over them, who is who is modeling Christ to them. And I don't want to make too much of this point because we make it a lot here. But men, it is our responsibility to be the the ones who who lead our homes and share Christ with our children. Men should not be checked out. The primary responsibility for teaching children and ensuring that they um, are shepherded in the ways of Christ is on the father, not on the mother. Although, of course, that's a mutual effort there, but it is dad's responsibility. And this has created, I think we can, we can surmise, this has created a certain amount of, of, of of insecurity in Timothy. Now we, we can't, we don't want to read too much into what his relationship was with his dad, but he's, he's not got a dad who's probably sticking it in the ground. His, his dad may have been a good guy teaching him how to change the oil and how to throw a football, but, but, and that's good stuff, but, but dads need to be there speaking life and the words of Christ into a kid or else there will be an insecurity in that child. Now, I want to stop here and say that if you don't have a dad that has done that, or if you're a woman in here and you don't have a man that is doing that, that can be augmented. It can be made up by other men in your life. But if you're a young man and you don't have an older man, especially your dad who's speaking, or some other man who's speaking life into you and modeling Christ to you, it very often will be a source of tremendous insecurity in your life. And evidently it was in Timothy as well. Timothy also had a, a kind of a, a companion, a, another one of the sharp young guys that was with Paul, and his name was Titus. And Titus, uh, we don't know as much about Titus, but, but Titus seems to be maybe a little bit, just a little bit tougher than Timothy, because when Paul writes to Timothy, he'll say some things like, he'll say some things like, hey, Timothy, in fact, he says it in the first letter to Timothy, he says, hey, um, use a little wine instead of just drinking water because your stomach's so sick. So it's kind of like, we know you're kind of weak. So use a little Pepto-Bismol and, you know, toughen up a little bit, kind of. And then he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians at the end of the chapter, he's sending Timothy to the Corinthians, who we know they're just a, a whack, crazy, carnal church doing crazy stuff. And he says to them at the end of Corinthians, he says, and be nice to Timothy, basically, is what he says. Receive him well. Right? And so, so Timothy carries this letter to the Corinthians, evidently fails because Paul had to write another letter, or he doesn't necessarily do all that Paul wanted him to do, and we're kind of reading into it a little bit there, because Paul had to write another 
letter to the Corinthians, which is 2 Corinthians, which is more stern and harsher than 1 Corinthians, where Paul is defending his ministry. But this time he sends Titus. And so he says, okay, I'm sending Titus to you this time. And, and I can just imagine Timothy saying, I'm, I'm just kind of the guy. I, my stomach is queasy. You know, I get, I get road sickness. I don't fly well. You know, I, I, I need naps. And... Um, you know, I, I, I need juice instead of, you know, like a regular drink. And, and, and now, you know, now Titus is having to tidy up what, I've, what I have not done. So there's this comparison probably that's going in Timothy's life where he's comparing himself. He's, he's nervous. He's anxious. He's timid. And Paul is writing to him in Second Timothy and he's trying to put steel in his spine. And I think probably like all of us, and now this is just my speculation that Timothy probably feared the rejection of men and feared people's opinion of him. And so Timothy dealt with insecurities. Um, what, what, are, what are our insecurities? And he had a heritage problem. Maybe we have a, uh, maybe we didn't come from the sharpest family. Maybe just walking into a room where people from certain places and culture just intimidates the, the mess out of you. And maybe, maybe there's just this sense that, um, you know, hey, if people could really find out what I was nervous about, um, they would realize what a poser and a fake I am. And it produces this, this, this guardedness and this distance between us and other people, and it produces this, this insecurity. That, that's the next point of these first seven verses that I want to draw out is what are the... What are the consequences of insecurity? The first thing that I think in my life that it does is it causes, it just absolutely causes your world to shrink, doesn't it? I mean, when you're, when you're nervous about something or when you're insecure about something or when you're, when you're, when you're hyper-focused and over-obsessed on a perception from some of the person or your performance or your comparison to some of the person, it just, doesn't it just take this big, vast world that God has given us and cause it to shrink into just a small little space. Jesus says something, I think that we just kind of breeze over in the Gospels in John chapter 10 when he's talking about the parable of the good shepherd. He says that in John chapter 10 verse 9, he says, he says I am the good shepherd and I, I have saved you. And anyone comes by me, he's saved. And he goes in and he goes out and has pasture. Jesus saves us so that we can have space, so that we can breathe. But insecurity and self-obsession and self-absorption causes us to shrink our world and to make God small and people big. I think also in my life, insecurity just causes me to be completely driven by, by perception of others and by performance. I don't know what it looks like in your life, but um, this is kind of what it looks like in my life. Um, Sunday afternoons are hard times for me. I preach, I get up in front of you, and, and I do my thing, and, and, and then sometimes I just just absolutely tank on Sunday afternoons when I don't feel like I did a good job you know you do that you ever have conversations with somebody and you just said something kind of silly and then you wake up at three o'clock in the morning like the next night and you're like oh did i say that oh what are they thinking about me and it just causes your world to shrink and, and what insecurity does is it 
It just think of it like a straight jacket. We're just, you know, we can move, but it's like we're, our arms are crossed and our legs are bound and we are just sitting in a chair locked down by insecurity and it inhibits us from being free to do what God actually wants us to do. And so we've got this young man, Timothy, who's got this gift. He's got this call on his life. He's got these things he needs to do. God has, has miraculously saved him. He has set him up with this man named Paul. He has, he has given him a ministry. The elders we read about in First Timothy have laid their hands on him. The future awaits this man. There is stuff to be done. There are churches to be planted. There's a gospel to be preached. And for us, there's a life to be lived. There's a job to be excelled in. There's a family to be raised. There's a marriage to be happy in. There are friends to release your heart to. But for whatever reason, we get clamped down. And we're scared and we're, and we're, and we're fearful. And we're driven by perception and performance. And it locks us down from the freedom and the will and the blessing of God in our life. And Paul is writing to that young man in that situation who has the world and the future before him, but who is about to miss it because of his self-absorption. He's about to miss it. Just like we miss the joys of marriage or vocation or parenting or relationship or, or being a Christian because our world has shrunk because of our insecurity. What is your insecurity? Just think about it. And I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit would, would zero in on that and just give you a sense of how that may have locked you down. How that may just be causing, just causing havoc in your life. Then we move on to verse 8. And this is really important. I need you to see this because Paul is going to give an answer to Timothy's insecurity and to ours, I think. But he's going to do it in an offhanded way. If you look at the first 14 verses in this, in this uh, that we read, that we're going to read through here today, this chapter. If we were to say, what is the main point of these first, teen, first 14 verses? The main point of these first 14 verses is not the most important thing that Paul says in these 14 verses. I think we could summarize the main point by saying Paul says to this young, insecure, self-absorbed, self-obsessed, timid, fearful young man. And he says to him, don't be afraid, but fan into flame the gift of God that is in you for the sake of the gospel. All right, so he, so what he's saying is, is the main point is, Timothy, don't be afraid, but fan into flame the gift of God that was, it is within you. But then he's going to say something here in verses eight and nine about why he shouldn't be insecure, which is, which is not the main point of the, the, the passage, but it is vastly more important. And how can that be? Uh, let me give you an example. It's like me saying that I am hungry because there is a famine in the land. Now, the main point of that sentence is, is that I am hungry, but it is vastly more important that there is a famine in the land. I am hot because my house is on fire. The main point of that sentence is that, wow, it, it is hot in here. Anybody else sweating? But it is vastly more important that the house is on fire. The main point of this paragraph is, is that Timothy is a scared little guy who needs to to not be afraid because God has something for him. 
And then the secondary thing that Paul says is the vastly more important than the main point. Let's read. So this is Paul's answer to Timothy's insecurity and ours. Check this out. So remember, let's go back. Let me go back to verses 6 and 7 just to catch us up. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9. I think this verse is the key to understanding what Paul is trying to say to Timothy here in this text. Verse 9. Now, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 9. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Listen to this. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, do this, share in the suffering, don't be ashamed, don't be scared, because it wasn't anything in you that qualified you to partake and participate in in this in the first place. It was God who saved you, apart from anything in yourself, but because of His own purpose and grace. Do you see how important that is? He's saying, don't be, don't be consumed with performance and perception, because performance and perception is not the thing that got you into this gig in the first place. Do you see, do you see how big that is? Because when we get insecure, it's all about us. But God here is saying that He saves us in spite of us. In spite of us. I mean, think about it for a second. Why are you a Christian and the person in Macedonia or East or South Columbus or, or California or Canada or Russia or Cuba? Why, why are they not a Christian? Because you figured it out and now you've got to maintain these smarts that you have? No, because of God's purpose and grace. And that should put steel in your spine because it's not based on you. It's based on a God who called you. And he's saying that to Timothy. He's saying, no, no, don't go inward now because it was never inward. It's always been outward. And that's what God has done in you. So put steel in your spine, boy. Steel in your spine. And don't be self-absorbed because it's of God's purpose and grace. That you are even able to do these things. So, so what is... Thank you. How about a glory on that one, huh? <laughs> so what is the application? You weren't saved because you were smart or popular. You didn't receive God's love because you were cute charismatic you didn't become a Christian because you had more smarts or because you had some gift or because people wanted to be part of your clique or because you're the person that everybody gravitates around in the hallway or at the water cooler God didn't save you for those reasons so now why are you being driven by those reasons After your salvation, Timothy, Brad, Crosspoint, you 
saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now, verse 10, has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which, I, I mean, God, just think about that sentence. I don't have a whole lot to unpack on that, but just, that's just one we just read, and it's like, oh, wow. Oh, that's great. I mean, Jesus showed up, abolished death, brought life through the gospel, which is the words that proclaim his work. That is spectacular. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. This is not a message, uh, this is not a main point of this message, but anytime you are doing anything for Christ, it will involve suffering in some form or another. He says, I suffer because I'm preaching this message. Verse 12, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So what he's saying is here is not about your work that you even got saved. And it's not about your work that you even stay in this gig. You didn't, you didn't get into grace by your work. You don't stay in grace because of your work. But then he's going to make a twist here where he's going to combine these two seemingly incompatible truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility together. And I love it. I love it when the Bible has these two things right next to each other because some people like to major on one and minor on the other. It's all God. Yes. And, and, and no, it's all people. No, it, it's all God. And you got some work to do. I love it. I love it because it makes no sense in this earth, but it can be together because it's the Bible. I love it. All right, let's go. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able. Okay, it's, 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 that God is the one on the verb here. He's the one doing it. He's able to guard. He's doing the guarding until that day, which is what, that which has been entrusted to me. Okay, so God saves you, not because of anything inside of you. And God preserves you and guards you, and he does it, not you. But, but, but now we get into the fourth point and final point, which is, okay, but now you've got some responsibility in this. Now, what do you do with that? How do you work yourself out of insecurity? How do you stop being self-obsessed? How do you make the center of the universe not your belly button? How do you not get a nervous feeling in your stomach when the phone rings or when you get an email from that person that you have a difficult relationship with or, or, or when you know you're going to be seeing that person or when, or when you're, you're, you're knocked off your horse because they don't react to you. How do you, how do you push past that now? You say, okay, Brad, I got verses 8 and 9 where God did it, so it's not me. But now, now, now what's my gig? Now do I just sit there and just you know, kind of sing kumbaya and take communion and, and run at her? Because Monday I'm going to have a bad day and I'm going to be insecure and the person that wrecks my world is still in my life. What do I do? Well, let's, let's keep reading. Verse 13. Follow, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Like, grab a hold. Follow. Like, you, you, they're just because of what God has already done in you. He has, and you got to understand what happens at salvation. You see, Christ, Christ takes our sin on the cross. We sang about it. Reynolds talked about it. He takes our sin 
on the cross and he takes it away. And then that verse that we sang about in Jesus and Messiah, Messiah, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what the theologians, specifically Martin Luther, pretty famous guy, uh, that he called it the great exchange. We talk about it a lot here. That Jesus takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. So he has done all the work and part of the work that he has done is he has given us his character He's given us His righteousness. He's given us His Spirit, which then empowers us to be able to do after salvation, even though it wasn't about us, and it's not our work that's saved, but now it empowers us to actually do something and to grab a hold of God and not be self-focused because the Spirit of God lives in us. It empowers us to do something, and that's what He says here. He says, now follow, man. Follow. Grab a hold of it like a, like a raccoon on a... I don't even know where I was going with that. I'm serious. I just thought of a raccoon and I started the sentence and I had nothing else. Glory. (laughs) You know what I'm thinking of? Probably only about 10 of you are going to get this, but um, there was this coach of the New York Knicks a couple years ago by the name of Jeff Van Gundy. Strapping five seven hundred and forty five pound weakling, and there was this brawl where these huge Herculean monstrous sized people from his team and the other team it was the New York Knicks and the Miami Heat, and they got in a fight on the court, and he grabbed a hold of the leg of one of the biggest human beings on the planet, Alonzo Mourning, I think was his name, who's like he's about seven feet you know two eighty. And little five seven bald weakling, looks like he needs some sun and a steak and a nap. Jeff Van Gundy grabs onto this monster's leg, trying to stop him from fighting. And I just, I think I just grab hold of it, man. Just, just you may get flailed all over the place, but grab hold of it. It's going to be hard. You grab a hold of an anchor in a storm, and the wind is still going to blow, and the sail may break, and the boat may be shattered. But as Hebrew says, the anchor holds. We are a spiritually, culturally lazy generation. If it's not, if it's not handed to us, if it's not fed to us, if it's not, if it's not doctored up in a curriculum that Lifeway or Sanctuary sells with bells and whistles and glossy covers, we just can't handle it. God forbid we get with somebody, we get honest, and we break it down and we pray and we follow the sound pattern of words, the Bible and biblical community, and we grab hold of the leg of God and say, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. I am an insecure mess that is a self-absorbed navel gazer that I am so selfish that I don't know what to do and I'm going to hold, I'm going to grab a hold of your leg, God. You've got it. I don't know. I don't have any cute little words that all start with the same letter. I don't have anything other than just grab a hold of it. Grab a hold of it. And if, if we don't have a culture in here where you can do that, man, and you can be passionate about that, and you can cry, and you can, and you can be prayed for, and you can be real, and you cannot play the silly little hallway face game, then we are, then we are, we are, we are missing the mark in here. Oh, come on. Come on, husbands. If you haven't prayed with your wife or children, if you haven't read the Bible to your kids, if you haven't made any effort to lead your family spiritually, it will be awkward for you to hold on to the leg there. It will be awkward. And that's fighting through the insecurity. 
There is no hallelujah chorus. There is no easy way to it. It involves suffering. It involves difficulty. It involves nervousness. It involves self-doubt. But you've got to follow. You've got to follow. You've got you to grab hold of it. I think I got that point. All right. Follow the sound pattern of words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We're going to end soon here. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, well, we could unpack hours on just the beauty of the presence of God in us. It empowers us to do this because I don't, the last thing I want you to do is say, okay, it's all God. Now I've got to get into the performance mode. No, no, it's not us now. It's not, I, I did, I'm not counteracting what I just said 15 minutes ago about how it's all God. It is, it is now us in cooperation with God after our salvation because God works in us and has given us His presence and His righteousness by the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. So now God has worked and God is working and God has now given you the ability to work. So work with God to battle your insecurities, Timothy and Brad and Crosspoint. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Grab a hold of it and absolutely don't let it go. I got three questions and then the guys are coming back. What's causing your world to shrink? Silly, I know. I've mentioned it here before. But when I was 12 years old, I had to get up in front of my church that I grew up in and read something like Youth Sunday. And I'd never been, I'd always kind of been the extrovert, you know, class clown, gregarious kid. Never even had the concept of stage fright before. But for some reason, when I walked up the steps there to the pulpit at First Presbyterian Church of El Centro, California, I froze. And I mumbled my way through it. I don't really even remember being able to read it. But from the age of 12 years all the way through high school, into my early adult years, even now I deal with the vestiges of debilitating stage fright and performance anxiety. I almost did not go to the college that I went to because I was fearful of having to stand up and give oral presentations. I couldn't read out loud in class in high school. When we would enter a class in new semesters, I would try and get to the class as early as I can so I could choose a desk that was close by the door so that if I were called on and I had to read out loud and it started to go poorly through halfway through the paragraph, I could dart out. It wreaked havoc in my life. And there are still times when I'm in a situation where I'm not very comfortable and I get called on and fear will seize me and grip me. And I may not deal with it on the spot anymore, but I am so often driven by the insecurity of perception and performance. What about you? What, what is killing you? Is there a friendship that looks good on the exterior, but on the inside it absolutely debilitates you? Is there a relationship, a work situation, a parenting situation, a situation where you're failing, man. Timothy failed. Evidently, he did not get the job done in Corinth. And so Paul had to write another letter to them. And this time he sent, this time he sent Titus. 
Is there a situation where you may even be failing? And it's caused you to just shrink. What's causing your world to shrink? What's your insecurity? Two, do you realize just how destructive and limiting and shrinking that insecurity has made you? Do you realize how that has taken the pasture that God has tried to put you in in salvation and how it has shrunk it down to a three-by-three pin? And finally, my third question as we respond here in the next few minutes in song, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to look inward? Are you going to try and muster the face? Are we going to try and do better? Or are we going to remember that it is God who saved us because of his purpose and grace? And as a result, we can grab onto that leg, follow, and follow, and follow. Every week we end in a time of response where communion is available for you. You don't have to be a member of this church. I think you just need to be a Christian to receive communion. And it, res- it helps us remember it's a profound remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And every week we, we have people down here to pray for you. And every week the guys come and lead us a couple songs at the end and we have a time to respond. But sometimes I still sense, and I think it's because of insecurity or self-absorption or just spiritual laziness, Too many of us just kind of put our hands in our pocket and check in. Now, I I, I realize, check out, I realize that everybody's made different and not everybody's going to react the same and I shouldn't project my personality response on you. But come on. Come on. But when's it going to, when is movement towards freedom and lifting your eyes above your belly button and seeing that God has got such a greater purpose than, 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 than tiny little insecurities that drive us into lockdown. And you say, thanks for that word, Brad. I'm going to chew on that and then I'm going to handle, I'm going to kind of deal with it on my own. You know what? Maybe, but here's been my experience. It never works that way. There's some beauty and grace and profound power to the gathering together of the saints that helps break people free from stuff. I'm not saying it all gets solved just because you come down to pray or take communion or worship. But there is a, there is a channel of grace that happens when we gather together that right now is the time for you to press forward, grab a hold of a leg, lift up your arms and pray, sink down in your seat and actually pray. Receive communion if you feel led. Get prayed for. But come on, man. Follow, follow, follow the sound. Pastor. Guard the good deposit. Fan in the flame what is already in you. Don't muster it up. Fan in the flame what has already been put in you by God. Now's the time. Lord, as we prepare to respond, and I wish, well, God, I hope that you have used me for the sake of leveraging open the door 
of our response to you. So now I'm, I'm not going to, like I sometimes do, I'm not going to re-preach the sermon in my prayer. I'm just going to say, God, I, I, I struggle with so many insecurities. I compare myself to other people. I so often base things on how I have done rather than having confidence in what you have already done through me and now want to do through me. And I become so self-absorbed. I confess that to you. I am an idolater. So God, forgive me of that and I pray that you would release me in a special way. I, I pray that today I would count as a day when you began to break down insecurities in my life that, you have, that I have allowed to accumulate. And God, I would count this, I would date today is the day that I began to break free from some insecurities that I have allowed because of my self-absorption to grow in my heart. God, today I pray that you do that in me. And God, if that applies to anybody in this room, and I think it does, would you be so kind as to do it for them as well? And would we, young, old, man, woman, child, boy, girl, all of us in the way that you made us, with tenacity, respond as you were leading? And would we fan into flame the gift of God that is in us? Would we follow, would we guard because of your purpose and grace? And God, if there's somebody in this room who it has become evident to them that they are not yet a Christian, would they just have the spiritual intensity and honesty to just say, hey, I need, I need you, God, I need you. And would you supernaturally, by your sovereign grace, would you open up their heart to the good news and the gospel, and would you cause them, as First Peter 1 says, to be born again to a living hope? And God, would you, would you help them turn from self-reliance and sin and then turn and trust and faith in Christ because they are born again by grace through faith in Christ alone. And God, for that person who that may be happening to right now, if that's you, I'm just, I'm, hopefully I'm explaining to you what's probably happening in your life. You're, you're passing through the birth canal right now and you, you, are, you are now enabled to exercise faith and trust in Christ, which isn't just mental agreement. It is now giving your life. It is responding to him with all that you are and saying, Christ, you alone are worthy. You alone are my sacrifice for my sin and insecurity and adequacy. And now I give my life in response to you. And I'm now a Christian. If you need some help just working through that, I'd love for you to come down and talk to me or somebody else uh, that you may know that's a Christian sometime today before you leave. But now it's the time for us to respond. So God, would we, with tenacity and spiritual fervor, respond appropriately to your purpose and grace in Jesus' name.